Welcome to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. This podcast is inspired by a line from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. You see, said the poet, I am one who likes to look for things. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and like Rilke, I like to look for things. Sometimes, let's be honest, more than I like to find them. In season one of In Search Of, we are exploring saints and sages, inner and outer landscapes, and the dynamics of searching and finding. As listeners know, this first season takes us more deeply into the experiences that I had while researching and writing my book, Wild Woman, in which I went in search of an elusive fifth century saint named Mary of Egypt. One of the very first searches that I went on felt fairly hopeless. Obviously, if I was going in search of Mary of Egypt, I needed to go to Egypt, but this felt like one of the more impossible aspects of my planning. I don't know if you, in your searching, have felt something like this, but it was a blockade, something that I could not find my way around and I could not go forward without. I was in search of a person who could help me discover the Egypt of Mary of Egypt, and this is not something you can find on the internet. I couldn't Google an Egyptian guide who can help me understand fifth century Egypt as a non-expert pseudo-pilgrim. Trust me, nothing comes up on the Google search. I tried emailing scholars at universities. I scanned many in Egyptian tour company. I asked any friend who'd ever been to Egypt. No guide appeared. I felt that I could not schedule my trip until this piece was filled in. One day I told my dilemma to a neighbor who'd been part of the United World Colleges. This is an amazing network of experiential colleges for young adults all across the globe. I'll put it out on the network, she said. As a result, a man named Yehia Eldekin, whom you'll meet on today's show, emailed me. There was something in his tone that led me to believe that he might indeed be able to help me. It was gentle and it was open. There was genuine curiosity in it. I remember that I was in a hotel room in Chicago where I'd gone for work when I poured out to the stranger across the ocean all of my hopes and my uncertainty about going in search of a woman who may not have ever walked the earth to an Egypt that existed only in my imagination. Was there any way to bring my imagination closer to a real Egypt or was this task a hopeless one? Yahia's reply indeed gave me hope. Yes, he said, come to Egypt, I will help you. And help me he did. But he also proved to be a fascinating individual in his own right. And that is why I asked him to join me here on this podcast today. Yehiel Deccan is one who knows how to look for things. Yehiel is a self-described tripologist. He helps people design experiences that have meaning and depth in his beloved native Egypt. He's a tour operator and head of the adventure arm of Holiday Tours Weekend Trips. Holiday Tours is an Egyptian-based travel agency that was founded in 1974 and helps people ex- explore the world in various locations. Welcome, Yahya. I'm so glad to finally connect with you. Hi, Amy. Well, that was uh, quite poetic. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to find being a tour operator life work. Well, I like to think of it that it found me because I never wanted to work in any uh, travel or any kind in my mind of entertaining industries. I I perceive travel as an or tours for leisure, some kind of entertainment, which is is fully important. 
but I never wanted to work in, in, in the field. But I don't want to talk so much about this, but basically I studied computer science at university level and I always dreamt to be an astrophysicist. I loved oh, wow. the philosophy of physics, how small you look at our world when you learn more about what's outside. And this is a family business. I, I ended up working for the family. And uh, after years of experience and learning about the job, I decided to deploy my whatever I enjoy doing through trip. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Egypt that tourists come to find and then help them to find that's different from what they imagine. So in, in response to your question, Amy, Egypt is studied in a lot of historical syllabus in schools globally, and hence becomes an attraction and a checklist for a lot of people when they want to uh, travel the world. But then we're faced with the stereotype in which what is marketed from a tourism perspective is not necessarily w- what the reality is like. For example, a lot of tourists come or visitors or travelers who want to visit Egypt, they start conversation with the tour operator like myself and and like this, we want to see the, the pyramids. And then a simple reply could be, which pyramids? Because in Egypt, we have 124 pyramids around and around because it, it really depends on different definitions of a pyramid. So based on the definition, we can then count. <laughs> and then people say, well, maybe we want to see the three pyramids of Giza. And in Giza, there are 24 pyramids, but the famous ones are called the three great pyramids of Giza. It, it, with the same entrance fees, you can see nine pyramids. So what we do is we try to understand what's the expectation a person has from their visit. So this expectation is set by themselves on themselves. So we try to understand that. And from there we start. And based on the expectation, is it a trip in which they want to experience things? They want to see, they want to learn more. They want to take uh, proper Instagram pictures for themselves, which is valid and, and really happens a lot lately. So the themes we look at are less more of destination based and more of what will make them feel satisfied from the trip. A lot of customers could just cross by the Great Pyramids and be satisfied. They don't need to really get close and touch. Others need to really try to see how the locals earn their living in simple jobs and so on and so forth. Some things we can do and offer, some things we can't. So we just try to dig deeper with questions and before coming, and then we try to, to deliver as much as we can. Do you also try to shift their understanding a little bit? Or are you yourself satisfied if you just satisfy their expectations? No. Okay, so this is a very good question because it's a little bit of a dilemma. Are you trying to expose the Egypt I like or I want to expose? Or is I'm trying to meet the expectation of the guests? Now, we have to meet middleware. So definitely, when I started exploring the different parts of Egypt that I'm trying to offer to my customers, I was really enjoying that. So it's something I love. And it's hard to be objective about something you love, but then you still need to be like the consultant. So me and my colleagues, we try to explain the situation and then give our strong recommendation. So both. So we say, okay, so based on what we understand from your request, this is what is what could happen with pros and cons. Try to be with, with, with very objective, try because of this and that. And the choice is yours. 
That's great. What are some of your favorite places in Egypt and how do you, oh. how do you make them available to tourists without doing damage to your beloved country? Basically, anywhere that is uh, not easily reached. So this would be a favorite. Also, anything that is unheard of. So all the civilizations that is parallel or older than the ancient Egypt, because Egypt is a big hit when it comes to ancient Egypt. From my point of view, referred to as Pharaonic Egypt. So this, I refer to it as ancient Egypt. And this is debatable, of course, it's my opinion. And this is quite available online and studied globally. The places I like are, for example, we have civilizations older than ancient Egypt, and we have no information about it. I cannot take anyone there because the area is closed, not open for visits. And there's so little information. And second part of his question was about how I make sure people don't, we maintain the destinations, right? So basically we have two concepts. The first is we call the concept of quantity. So we make sure that not only us, uh, the, the destination is not uh, over visited per any uh, period of time. And the second is related to uh, the number of guests, to the number of staff from our company. So the ratio should always be between one to three to one to eight, making sure that all the instructions are comfortably delivered. We want people to have fun, but at the same time, enjoy the place and leave intact anyway. But then there is a level in which the, we're visiting the place, we're leaving footsteps any, somehow, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this is damage or not, uh, but for example, there are many monasteries all over Egypt. Monasteries are, are designed and concept for monks to, to be away from people. And then we try to make it accessible for our guests. And there's a dilemma because they don't want, they shouldn't want guests, right? <laughs> That's against the concept itself. So we try not to send a lot of people, especially on public holidays, but we want people to see the places also and learn and talk to the monks. It's not that we, we don't guide inside the, the monastery, it's, it's the monks that do. So it's a bit of a gray line and we're sure some changes do happen. What are some of your recent discoveries? Anything that you're excited about? Recently, no, because it has been really hard after the current situations globally from almost 10 years now. It's mm -hmm. place, many places have been closed and accessibility has been very limited or hard. And uh, we wish to go to places according to uh, government protocols. We don't, uh, we don't like to be privileged as a unique company. That's not how things work. And it's actually not good for the industry, right? Could be good for us for a short term, but then not good for us at later and for the industry as well. So, so we have been limited on our discoveries of these destinations. So we've done something very different. We've started to work on creating experiences on what is accessible. Like now we, we operate individual flights over the Great Pyramids of Giza to see a different view. And to our surprise, when I did one of the pilot flights, I, I was able to see a lot of ruins inside the pyramids area that I never thought existed because they were never ready for or, or nor open for tourists. And I could see them from above because from above you can see everything, right? This seems like an interesting thing for my question about searching and discovering. Uh, you're suggesting that there's also a way of getting a new view on something you've seen many times 
by yes. asking a different set of questions or taking a different approach. Very true. And for example, I got to learn lately that apart from knowing earlier that Egypt has seven languages, which is not a very common piece of knowledge. I'm not talking about dialects of Arabic, seven different languages. Separate languages. Separate languages, yes. And what's also very interesting that Hesa Island, which I, it's an island you've been to, I believe. Yes. It's in the south of Egypt. And according to the locals, Arabic was introduced to this island not more than six years ago. 60 years. So, so since ancient Egypt and until today, I believe kind of parallel world in a way. Wow. Because up to it, now they refuse to have a, a bridge to connect to the Nile Valley, right? Yeah. And they have maintained so much of their culture and identity, and which is beautiful. And it's a shocking piece of information also. And they speak Nubian on that island, so, is that right? They still do speak both languages. You talk to a three-year-old kid running in front of their house in a garden in Arabic, they look to you and they reply fluently and then they look back at their parents and they talk in fluent Nubian. Uh-huh. Yes. So we, we try to undust this kind of information through the trips itself. Not, the guests try to f- figure out those information on the go. And we believe this is very interesting. The process of discovery for the guest is transformative. I, I, I hope that sounds very eloquent. What are some of the stranger or more unusual requests that you've received from uh, people who want to visit Egypt? Lately, there is a high demand on synagogues around Egypt. Mm. And there's one that's open for tourism all the time. It's in a very interesting spot. And because it's right next to many churches and at the first mosque, well, it is the second, but it's known as the first mosque in Egypt and Africa. And they're all in the same area. Egyptians love this area because they say it's the, um, the area of all religions, but uh, they mean heavenly religions, right? And But that's the only one that's open all the time. And it used to be a church at some point that was purchased by, by a rich person. I don't, I don't remember correctly if it was purchased to be a church or to be a synagogue, but it went back and forth between the, those two. So it has the the design and architecture of a church, but it is a synagogue. So the area is very interesting, but that's the only one open. The rest are not open, and there is a very small minority of Jews in Egypt. You can request visits, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. So we've been asked about this lately, yes, a lot. And we find it strange because this didn't happen early, 10 years ago. Do you have any idea what has made the change? I don't know. But since when travel gets l- more limited, I see a pattern of expecting guests that are more different. So, for example, when there was revolutions in Egypt and Libya and Syria and all around in the area, we still got tourists. But those tourists were not scared to be in, in an area with similar events they were different, right? They were interested to see different things. So that's what we expect usually. Like we say, they have the the brave heart or the guts to do something different and to be in this place at this time of the the world happenings, right? That's fascinating. I mean, that's a, that thing that tourism in Egypt had become such a, a rote activity. You sign up, this is your tour. This is exactly what you are going to do 
But even as the society went through a major revolution, then also the kinds of people who came to Egypt underwent a transformation. That's fascinating. You are listening to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century. You'll be inspired and informed by the excellent writing and thinking found in the pages of Christian Century magazine. Subscribe with this special offer only for podcast listeners who are also new subscribers. Get a whole year of the century for just $19.95. To sign up, go to christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. That's christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. So I know that when I first reached out to you, I was anxious about traveling in Egypt as a woman alone. And I'm imagining that you probably hear that, not just from me, but from others. And I wonder if you could just speak a little bit. What do you tell people like me when I say, oh, I do I need to bring some men along? Can I travel <laughs> in Egypt alone? What do you tell people? So basically, I, I can tell you some facts and then I can tell you my opinion, but the, the decision has to be 100%, I guess. So the fact is that I believe Egypt is a very safe country because the number of pickpocketing that happens is, is very little. The number of physical sexual harassments that happen is very little. Verbal is a lot, but in Arabic. And especially that in three-star plus hotels and all sightseeing that are categorized as antiquities. So all those places are heavily equipped with the tourist police. So I don't see any problem if someone is traveling alone. I, I believe it's very safe. In some places where uh, tourists are not expected to be walking at this time or at, at all day round, so the recommendation is to try to mingle, not try to stand out, mm-hmm. right? In dress code specifically. It doesn't have to be that extreme, but mingle, look like a local. You wouldn't with your hair color and skin right. color, but with the dress code, it would be appreciated. So I don't think it's a problem for any woman. And when we go to remote areas, it's then really safe because locals usually treat foreigners in, and foreigners, including other lo- locals from Egypt, from different parts of Egypt, as locals. So, for example, if they don't allow their ladies to walk uh, alone in the street, if you are about to walk along the street, someone will accompany you, another lady will accompany you, or they will ask you to be accompanied by someone or take a driver. They will not treat you as a stranger. The other thing you told me that I thought was really helpful and ended up being really true was that Egyptians were family-oriented people who made sense of the world through family and kinship and, and relationship. And so if I brought family with me, it didn't matter who the family was, but I would be understood better or I would be interpreted more easily by the people. And I found that to be really true. People knew how to understand me, that there's a there's a, a mother and a daughter. But when I would, if I did go out onto the street alone, suddenly I lost that context. I, I was more difficult to interpret. And so then people interacted with me in a different way. And I just found that fascinating. You know, in my country, people are often interpreted only as individuals. And we often struggle to make sense of context. But in But in Egypt, it was sort of the reverse, where whenever I was with my mother, everyone understood perfectly who I was and what I was doing. (laughs) When I was alone, it was different. It was really, it was fascinating for me. When I told you about what I was going to do in Egypt, I talked about myself as a kind of pilgrim and um, you showed some really genuine understanding about what that might mean, even if I didn't know what I was talking about necessarily. But I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about pilgrimage in Egypt 
maybe about both Christian and Muslim pilgrimage and how how you've interacted with it and and what it's like for pilgrims in Egypt. You mean inside Egypt as a destination, correct? Yes. So the way I, I perceive things now is that we mainly have Egyptians are divided according to faith into Coptic and, and Muslim, mostly Sunni. And they're both in locally, there are plenty of, I would say, ceremonies, uh, not necessarily pil- pilgrimages, uh, in which great number of Egyptians attend could be greater than the number that go to Mecca and Jerusalem or similar uh, ceremony in Egypt. There are plenty all over the country for both Copts and uh, Muslims, and they both have similar ceremonial aspects. And they're basically, for I don't know about the Coptic, for, for the, the Muslims, basically visiting a place where a saint was buried on his birthday. And then other thing, other uh, ceremonials happen. So there's not much about the travel or the trips. The people get there uh, normally, like with, uh, driving or with buses. And then they just uh, celebrate. And that's as much as I know. Did I answer your question? Yeah. So what you're saying is that there's a tradition of saints in Muslim tradition. And wherever the saint is buried, people come and, and celebrate at that spot on that saint's birthday. Yeah, that's how I understand it. I'm not so much into it. That's how I understand it. <laughs> and yeah, because there are hundreds and there is no one listing. Few of my Egyptian friends that lived abroad, when they come to Egypt, asked me before if I can provide them with a list of all those mulets. It's called mulet. The mulet comes from birth. And, then, and I, I didn't have it and we couldn't find any. It's actually space to dig deeper and attract more traffic to our blog, right? So if we make a list of those. And some are really remote, like uh, way more south than Aswan. And some are in the middle of uh, the big towns. And some are very small, in which in one area you can find uh, 10 different saints buried. And they have their mullets in different times of the year. That's amazing. I really hadn't ever thought about that how I remember visiting one mosque that was a, a pilgrimage site and it had built this at this mosque in Alexandria. They had, you know, pavilions and places where yeah. when everyone gathered, they, they stayed. But I, I didn't really, I didn't really have a sense of how it worked. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's uh, movies and dramas and novels talk a lot about it. I'm not a Sufi. Sufism is big in Egypt, very, very big. And uh, each Sufi person follows uh, a Sufi way and he has some kind of priest, Muslim priest, to to help him, her. And the head of the way is always thought to be a person with special connection with God in a way, if I do understand right, maybe I don't have the right understanding. And when they die and they're buried, the place they're buried, they believe it's, it's like special in a way. And that's where they go and visit. Interesting. Yeah. Because you have to see also that not everyone sees the uh, philosophical or the metaphorical aspect of it. Some people really go to the saint, the dead saints themselves, and, and kiss their grave and ask them for favors, as if they're asking God. So they get deviated by time. So some claim and say, no, you shouldn't do that. It's, it's some kind of loss of faith because you're treating humans that are dead in a godly manner. But this is, both are extremes, right? 
So if you take things to the extreme, it's, I mean, if you eat a lot of anything that's healthy, it becomes not necessarily healthy. So right. it's, it's the extreme fact that makes it uh, a problem, but it happens in Egypt, it exists, and the opposing opinion strongly exists, and that neither stops the other. That's right. It, I'm sure most of my listeners are thinking about the relationship between Protestants and Catholics and Protestants' <laughs> refusal to recognize saints and can, can, Catholics' yeah. understanding of sainthood as they, yeah. I mean, I realize that the parallel isn't exact, but it, it's, um, but that argument goes on in Christianity as well. What is the purpose or meaning of a saint, which was what I was exploring as a Protestant. I was exploring the purpose and meaning of a particular saint. And I don't find myself overwhelmingly devoted to saint. I'd never really engaged the question of sainthood before I went on this journey. So I really resonate with what you're saying. Yeah, I think God is, is so kind and offers a lot to allow both to exist happily and to have discussions and debates. And I don't think either is wrong. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And it seems like in Egypt, you and I talked a lot about the relationship between Christians and Muslims. I know from the perspective of the United States, we have this perception that Christianity and Islam are in conflict in Egypt, but you are a Muslim who's married to a Christian and had the rare experience of having wedding ceremonies in Muslim, Christian, and civil settings. I, you're maybe one of the only people <laughs> on the planet who's experienced this, but you seem uniquely qualified yeah. <laughs> to <laughs> speak about the relationship between Muslims and Christians in Egypt. What would you say? Well, I, I have two things uh, to say. Before 1948, before uh, Israel State uh, was created, we had a very famous movie called Hassan Omar Sokohain, which is basically about three friends that go through things together throughout life. Maybe it's fun time or, or struggles. But the names tell it all. The name, Hassan is a very Muslim name. You can know the person, what religion, faith they're following from their first name. So Hassan is a very Muslim name. Moros is a very Christian name. And Kohen is a very Jewish name. So they were friends and they were having, uh, it, it was a nice movie, black and white. Now we have, uh, we just uh, released the movie 10 years ago. And it was about two uh, neighbors called uh, Hassan and Morochos. So there was no Kohen, right? And uh, it's interesting because... The, I can see the relationship between the three back then, similar to the relationship between the two now. I hear about the conflict between Muslims and, and Christians from international media. <laughs> but you don't see it in your everyday I, I don't. Maybe some Egyptians do, more than me. Uh, there's more clustering in specific parts of the south of Christians and the north of Muslims. Definitely the Muslims number is way bigger. No one knows the exact numbers. I believe I watched on TV the head of the statistics department of the government said they signed an agreement in, I think, in the 80s or the 90s, a global agreement that does not, uh, they, they don't do statistics on the number uh, of citizens that be belong to a certain faith anymore. Mm. So no one knows how many. And Egyptian Christians are very specific because they're Coptic and it's, they follow their own church. They don't follow any international, like for Catholics, the Vatican, we have our own cathedral in Egypt and it's, uh, it follows their own Pope in Egypt. I don't know if they call him Pope or not. And I believe Pope Francis visited Egypt like two years ago, around that. And during his visits, there was a meeting between the head of the Coptic church, the head of the Catholic church, and two other churches. And I believe on the news, there was some mentioning that this is the second meeting 
in 500 years wow. for those four heads to meet. Wow. And they were discussing marriage between different sects of, of Christianity. Because in Egypt, uh, it's not easy, but uh, Muslims and Christians could marry, but uh, Copts and Catholics cannot marry. You also told me about um, how Muslims and Christians in Egypt respect one another's um, fasts. I, I think this would be hard for Americans to imagine, but can you describe how do Christians respect Ramadan and how do Muslims respect Christian periods of fasting? Can I give an analogy? Yes. When you see a pregnant woman on public transportation, it's a global feeling that you give her your space and you allow, if it's crowded, you allow her to pass and you ask people to make uh, passage, right? It's similar. So you have like, people don't eat in, in public because not only Christians don't fast in, in Ramadan in Egypt, but also a lot of Muslims don't fast. It's not that it is a part of, a strong part of the religion that uh, they do. It's a personal decision at the end of the day. So a lot of people don't fast because they don't want to. A lot of people, they don't fast because they have reasons. Could be health reasons, could be other reasons. And regardless of this, nobody eats in the streets. So whether it's a personal decision, it's a religious, there is no uh, public display of food throughout the country. And then restaurants, timings, of course, it follows the trend, the masses are designed more for towards the times of eating that's also very social and economical that's a great example of that sort of social respect so you may or may not want to tell this story but i tell a little bit about it in the book and so i think it'd be fun for readers to hear from you about it at your recommendation and with your help I went to the monastery of St. Anthony near the Red Sea, yeah. Zafarana. The first. And uh, you told me that you've tried to hike between the monastery of St. Anthony and the monastery yeah. of St. Paul, but that you <laughs> haven't been very successful. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so I learned a lot from visitors, from their passion and interest level to find and see places in Egypt. I, I learned about the monastery from books that were written by non-Egyptians, and I was very young at the time. And the, the special thing about this monastery is that it's the first monastery in the world, or so history claims. And monk of St. Anthony himself was the first monk globally. I think it was 1700 years ago. So it was, I, I believe in Muhammad and his message, uh, Islam, which is 300 years according to the sun calendar before Muhammad's birth. Now, it's interesting that when I learned about it, that, I mean, St. Anthony didn't just decide to say, okay, I'm, I'm building a monastery or I'm becoming a monk. He just followed his passion. He did something he believed was the right thing to do. And then others followed and it became a trend and it had a name. So he became a monk later. And what's interesting about him so much to me is that there, are, there is another monastery on the other side of the mountain that uh, kind of, or another monk that was in isolation uh, to worship God. And Santan dreamt of this person and he was uh, sick and kind of dying. So he hiked the mountains to visit him. I tried to repeat this hike a few times without the help of anyone because St. Anthony didn't have help from anyone, according to the story. And he was alone. 
I wasn't. I had some friends, and he didn't have hiking equipment from shoes and and GPS and 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 compass and root sack to carry water and a tent and everything. We had all. We have all that. And I wanted to prove to myself that it's not an easy thing to do by example and to, to my guests also. And we, we failed three times. And throughout the, the, the trial of walking, he was always walking in the direction of Mecca. Huh. Maybe that's how they were both shaped, uh, placed the two monasteries. But it's interesting because I pray the five times a day and on trips, it's divided on three times. It's less. And this is a trip. So Throughout the three times while hiking and trying to pray, I, uh, I realized that it, it, the direction we're walking to is the same direction I'm praying. So that's what uh, we did. I learned from Lonely Planet that plenty of people cl- try this hike and they succeed and they use lo- local Bedouins to, to help them. And sometimes they request from monks to assist them uh, with the preparation and finding a proper local guide. But the way we did it was almost to try to figure the way out ourselves. I love it. And it didn't work. So far, it has not worked. Does We're never able to difficult. carry enough water. So right. we'd always have to come back. I mean, there's this, I love what you're saying. There's this beautiful irony that the first monk goes in search of the better monk, even though he's yeah. the first, right? It's a paradox. How can the first monk go in search of another monk? And yet that's what yeah. he does in this story. Don't necessarily believe that St. Paul was at the same time as St. Anthony. I, it, the stories go like this, but I, as a person, I'm, I'm kind of rejecting the idea because I like the fact that St. Anthony was the first and it's, that's how it existed. And St. Paul never learned from St. Anthony because they never met before he was tired and he visited them according to the stories. So, so it's a parallel, so, which is very hard to happen at this almost the same spot in the same part of the world at the same time from two different people. Um, I find it hard to believe, but it's as a story, it's a beautiful story. When I started to learn more about uh, St. Anthony's sayings, or they were quite, a lot of them, were, or some of them, were very close to sayings from Prophet Muhammad. So I believe that there are a lot of great people, a lot of people that had connection with God. Not all of them are, are known to us. That uh, like Abraham and and uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Solomon and David and Moses and Jesus and Ayat Muhammad. Not all of them are their history and their stories are known to us, but maybe they more exist now. And they're it's the same God at the end of the day. Maybe Buddha was one of them. I I don't know. But the interesting thing is that they both agreed on many concepts. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Yehe. This is so fun to spend this time with you. I I miss you and Maria and Zach, and I wish that I could be there with you. This has been a podcast production of The Christian Century, thoughtful, progressive Christian magazine of theology, politics, and culture. Visit us at christiancentury.org slash in search of to find show notes for this episode, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to find all the episodes of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Steve Thorngate. Editorial assistance has been provided by Annalisa Burns and Amy Adams. Special thanks to Kyle Peterson for theme music. The Christian Century is an independent, not-for-profit organization that relies on donations and subscriptions to create rich content like this podcast. Have you considered making a donation to the Century? Is your magazine subscription up to date? Visit ChristianCentury.org to make a donation and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.